Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Wednesday, the 21st of September, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe. Go to LibertyShield.com right now. Use the code EPL25. That's EPL25. To get 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops. You'll find them on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Do also be sure to check out the EPL Roundtable podcast, the latest episode is up and it is part two of the transfer window review. Myself and Kevin DeVries. Part one was on this feed, so go and listen to that if you haven't already and then listen to part two over on Kevin's. Uh, there is also the Tad Predictable podcast, which comes out on this feed, but it being international break, to deal with won't have a podcast this week. He did post one last week if you haven't heard it. It's probably not relevant anymore because it was a prediction pod, but if you want to listen to it, it is there anyway. And he will be back next week ahead of the next round of Premier League games. There is no real point in me getting too deep on these Premier League games in the weekend gone because I assume you already know the results. Aston Villa beat Southampton 1-0 in an absolutely atrocious game of football. Nottingham Forest lost 3-2 to Fulham in what was a very good game that Forest deserved something from but had a wee bit of a collapse for about 10 minutes. Manchester City beat Wolves 3-0. Wolves had a player sent off after half an hour. I'm not going to say his name because I'm so disappointed that he was sent off. But 
Jack Grealish deserved it. That's what I'll say. Uh, Newcastle won. Bournemouth won. Another poor performance from Newcastle, it must be said. Tottenham 6, Leicester 2. Why does Brendan still have a job? More on that later. Brentford nil, Arsenal 3. Arsenal were good. Brentford were awful. And finally, Everton won West Ham nil. Everton get their first win of the season and their fans get oh so excited because Frank is building something. Despite the fact that West Ham had all the best chances in the game and it was a very, very fortunate win for the Ev, whose tactical approach of parking the bus, working really hard and trying to hit teams on counterattacks is far from inspirational. They're playing some of the worst football in the league unsurprisingly considering they've got the worst manager in the league but the manager they beat has had a really bad start of the season and I want to talk more about him later on as well so that's the Premier League games of the weekend caught up on as we know Chelsea didn't play at the weekend and neither did Brighton both games were called off the Brighton game had been called off because of the proposed rail strikes in the end the rail strikes were cancelled, but they decided not to put the game back on. The Chelsea game was cancelled because of the Queen's funeral on Monday. That meant that Graham Potter did not get to manage his new team, Chelsea, in a Premier League game. But they did play behind closed doors friendly against Brighton, which is largely irrelevant because it's a behind closed doors friendly. It meant that Brighton didn't have to play a game without a manager. But Brighton now have a manager, and his name is Roberto De Zerbi. He is an Italian. He is 43 years of age, and he was last seen patrolling the touchline of Shakhtar Donetsk in Ukraine. He was well on course to winning the league title, and um, unfortunately for him, the season was cancelled because of the war in Ukraine. Probably more unfortunate, of course, for the people of Ukraine, uh, whose lives have been massively affected and in some cases ended by this illegal Russian aggression. But yeah, uh, the Zerbi was doing a very, very good job with Shakhtar. He'd lost only one of his 18 league games, 15 wins and two draws. And they sat two points clear of... Shakhtar of um sorry of Dinamo Kiev. There are 30 games, so there was 12 left, and they you did fancy them to win the whole thing. Uh De Zerbi had done himself no harm at all in terms of his reputation as a coach. He had won the Ukrainian Super Cup and he was progressing in the Ukrainian Cup before that was also cancelled due to uh, Russia's illegal aggression. Um, So what is he? Who is he? Well, he is a very interesting manager who goes completely against the normal expected profile of an Italian football manager. Italians... There's such a mad contrast with with Italy and Italian football over the years because Italy is a is a flamboyant country and we think of Italy and we think of incredible architecture, incredible artwork, incredible food, 
really pushing the boundaries in all of those spheres. We think of a culture of people who are very expressive. We think of the fashion from Italy. We think of the, the passion of Italians. But their football, in general, is completely contrasting with how they do everything else. Their football is very pragmatic. It's very results-orientated. It's very much about winning. When you begin, you have a plan to win. And how you get to that victory is kind of irrelevant. Whereas with everything else, the journey is what's more important. And you just end up where you end up. You might have some ideas in your mind of where you want to end up, but it's the experience of getting there that matters most. Well, De Zerbi very much takes the Italian way of life into his football. It is about the journey. It is about the process. Whereas traditional Italian managers, and you look at some of the greats like Capello, like Lippi, like Allegri in, in recent years, like Conte. For them, winning was all that mattered. And it was about getting the most out of the team. For others, like Saki, it was also about the process. Now, Saki put team over everything. And that's where the likes of De Zerbi differs from a Saki. Saki maintained that Italian viewpoint that it's about getting the very best out of the team, maximizing the strengths of the group while hiding individual weaknesses. De Zerbi prefers to highlight individual strengths. He prefers focusing on player development. We've seen many Italian managers overlook the development portion of individuals for the collective development of the team. But De Zerbi goes against that grain. Now, you know I love Graeme Souness. I'm about as big a Souness fan as there is. I think he's actually a good pundit. But he exposed himself for some severe ignorance here with some comments he made on TalkSport about De Zerbi. Now, I understand that on TalkSport, when you sign your contract to work for TalkSport, it probably states somewhere in there that you have to make stupid statements so that they can clip them up and put them out in the social media to try and drive some interaction, to try and, you know, reignite some interest in what is very much a, a dying radio station. Like, let's be honest. No smart person really listens to talk sport. It's for the gammons of the world. It's for the paint-by-numbers people. It's not for anyone who thinks deeply about sport. It's not for anyone that watches a lot of sport. It's for people that go to the pub, drink 15 pints, think they watch a game, but don't really see much of it because their eyes have glazed over 
and go home knowing only the score and maybe who scored and then afterwards make decisions on whether it was a good game or a bad game. That's basically what talk sport is. It's for, you know, the elbow mentality, the gammon and gravy, the basics. That's basically what it is. So my assumption is Graham Souness has been told to dumb it down. But this was really dumb. This was taking it to a new low of dumb. So first things first, he spoke about how many jobs he'd had. Seven jobs in nine years. And he said, if you were exceptional, clubs would want to keep hold of you. So let's have a look. So the first job he had was with a club called Darfo Boria, who currently play in Serie D. And I believe when he was there, they were actually the lower tier than that. So he moved on from there. And he went to Foggia. In 2014, he joined Foggia. Foggia are a club who have always given managers of a different mindset, a platform to be great. Now, Foggia's most famous manager is Zeman. He managed them from 86 to 87 and again from 89 to 94, again from 2010 to 2011, and again from 21 to 22. He is 75 years of age and he managed them again last year. This is his club. This is the club he adores. And this is the club that adore him. And his brand of football. Now, obviously, he was born in Czechoslovakia. He is not Italian. But his footballing education largely came in Italy. His entire coaching career, bar one spell at Fenerbahce when he was 53, and one spell at Red Star Belgrade when he was 61. Everything else has come. Oh, no, he, sorry, excuse me. He managed Lugano in 2015, uh, aged 68. But you get my point. From his very first job when he was the youth coach at Palermo, all the way through to this last job at Foggia, he has been managing in Italy. With very few years off, he worked consistently from 1974 through to 2016 and he's in that time he spent less than three years out of the country and he's had two jobs since and they've both been in Italy <laughs> regardless he he built a Foggia team and brought them from the third division to the first division to Syria playing an incredible brand of football. A 4-3-3 that was uber-attacking at a time when Italian football was not Catanaccio level of defence, but very defensive. The best team at that time, Capello's Milan. Capello's Milan defined by that Milan back four. Winning league titles while scoring... 30-odd goals a season, but only conceding 12. That is Foggia. They are the club that went against the grain early. 
And in Deserby, they found a man, another manager like Zeman, who also went against the grain and wanted to play an attacking brand of football. Now, he stayed there until 2016. They did not want him to leave. He did not leave because they asked him to. He left because Palermo, a Serie A team, came in for him. Now, things did not go well at all. It was a very, very bad time for him at that club. And he was sacked after just a couple of months. Then he went to Benevento. Regional club. Sort of a yo-yo club. Not a club who'd spent huge amount of time in Syria. A club that were, you know, were up and down. Mostly down. And he brought his brand of football and played some really, really impressive stuff with that club. Unfortunately, though, they'd just been promoted when he was appointed. The season had started really badly for them. He took over a losing team and they were relegated. But the football they played was breathtaking. And this was the first real nationwide acknowledgement of this guy might be really, really good. He was only 38 when he got the job. He was still relatively unknown. He was only really known for the failure at Palermo because Foggy had been in the lower leagues and people weren't paying attention. He left at the end of that season. They didn't want him to leave. They begged him to stay. The football was outstanding. He'd done decent business in the January transfer market. He had turned the club around from where they were when he took over in October, where they looked like they were dead and buried. He had completely lifted the mood. But he left to join Sassuolo. Now, they're also a smaller regional club. They'd had... I suppose, some success in the prior years under Eusebio Di Francesco. They'd gotten into Europe. He had left to go to Roma. And they were looking for a new manager in a new direction. And they found it in Deserby. And again, the football that he played at that club was magnificent. And in three years he overperformed 11th, 8th and 8th. All while having his best players sold on him routinely because that's how they operate. It's how they have to operate, not knocking it. It's what they have to do to survive as a club. They'd had a bit of a disappointing year the year before. Christian Buki, who'd come in to replace Di Francesco, only lasted a couple of months. Giuseppe Ianchi had come in. He's just a journeyman manager who's not great. He had seen them through till the end of the season. In walks De Zerbi. And things start to turn around. They get Kevin Prince Boateng. They get Jeremy Boga. And they bring in um, Enrico Brignola, who was a who's a, a young forward, still a young forward, 
uh, who came in from Benevento. Now, it didn't really work with him, but Jeremy Boga was unbelievably good for them. And Kevin Prince Boatang, whose career was kind of judged to be over, uh, absolutely excelled under him. They finished 11th, the same as they had the year before. But they played great football. And we saw the development of a couple of players who would go on to make them significant amounts of money. So the first, first player to mention here is Mary Demerel, the centre-back. Juventus would buy him at the end of this season for a huge amount of money. I think $22 million. Sassuolo had only had him on loan. I think he was on loan from Sporting Lisbon's B team. Wasn't even a first team player. I think he was on loan from the B team. And he was outstanding for them. He only arrived in the January. And by the summer, Juventus were all over him. Uh, next up then, we have... Stefano Sensi. Who'd come in on the cheap. Deserbi loved him. And don't be surprised if you see his name pop up next summer linked to Brighton because he's on the outset into Milan. He's on loan at the moment with uh, AC Monza. And it wouldn't surprise me if Deserbi wanted to reunite with him because he was absolutely key to this first Sassuolo team. Jeremy Boga had a really good first year. Alfred Duncan had a pretty good year as well. He's now Fiorentina. And Manuel, Loc Manuel Locatelli, who had been deemed surplus to requirements at AC Milan, having initially broke through as a young player and shown real promise, he'd kind of fallen off the right path in terms of development, was shipped out to Sassuolo and just took off from there. Now at Juventus, obviously key part of the squad that won the Euros last year. Two young players to keep note of here, Gianluca Scamacca and Giacomo Raspadori. Neither of them played in this season, but they would both go on to have big stories to tell themselves. Um, and Domenico Berardi, who had sort of plateaued for a little while, he had a bounce back year and was very, very impressive. Like I said, they finished 11th in that first year. And the football that they played began to get a lot of notice. There was a lot of movement in the front three, a lot of centralised build-up play. Full-backs were mostly used to recycle possession. Centre-backs would step into midfield and look to make line-breaking passes and also dribbles. They would slow the game down and slow the game down and then... In an instant, when they found what they were looking for, that one passing lane, that one defender who was a half yard too far one way or the other and was leaving an opportunity for a ball behind, bang. And they would cut teams apart with two, three passes. Simplified, but effective. And very, very impressive to watch. But you would watch them move the ball around, and just tempt teams to press them. Just tempt teams 
to cheat out a little bit on them. And then they would carve them apart. It was great to watch. The second season, they finish eighth. In this season, there's a couple more players that start to really make an impact. Hamed Junior Traore is one. He was great this season. Scored five goals from midfield and really started to develop as an all-round player. Raspadori had a bigger role this season than the year before. Berardi took another step forward. And it was largely the coaching that he got from De Zerbi that forced Mancini's hand into making him such an integral part of the team that would eventually go on and win the Euros. Uh, there was also Francesco Caputo, who he's a bit of a journeyman over his career. And he, <clears throat> excuse me, he arrived this first summer and scored 21 goals, having been brought in from Empoli. He'd spent most of his career in Serie B, had one good season with Empoli, went to Sassuolo and had the best season of his career. That season, Locatelli was out on loan. Alfred Duncan was sold. He'd been an important part of things, so they lose him. In year three, again, they finish eighth. This year, you've got a couple more players who start to really become noticed. Maxime Lopez, who developed at Marseille as an attacking midfielder, deserved got him made him more of a deep-lying playmaker, and he was really impressive. Uh, Hamid Traore, he continued to develop. Locatelli continued to develop. Boga continued to develop. Raspadori continued to develop. Berardi had an even better season than the two before. Pedro Obiang, you remember him? He used to play for West Ham. He was really impressive for them in a midfield rotation role. And again, the football was great. Again, they punched well above their weight. And they're doing this all while playing away from their home stadium because their home stadium was deemed not fit to be used. So they have to go and play at Reggiana Stadium. In fact, how long have they been playing at that stadium? It's been, it has been a while. God, has it been that long? Wait one sec. Sassuolo have actually been playing there since 2013. I didn't realize it was that long. Their own stadium is, it only holds 4,000. That's why it can't be used. The Stadio Enzo Ricci, it only holds 4,000. So that is why it can't be used. But, I mean, the town itself only has a population of 40,000. So we always hear about Villarreal and how incredible it is that they've had such success coming from such a small town. But Sassuolo is even smaller. Uh, Villarreal has a population of about 50,000. So... This is another one of those teams that really does punch well above their weight. 
on budget, on whatever you want, this team probably doesn't belong in the top flight of Italian football. But under Di Francesco, under De Zerbi, they continue to outperform expectations. And under De Zerbi in particular, they did it by playing a really exciting brand of football. They did it by taking the game to the top clubs. By not backing down, regardless of who it was that they were playing against. By believing that they could outplay whoever it was that they came up against. And this was so impressive. And there's a bunch of people that will write really good tactical pieces about them. And I would recommend going and reading as many of them as you can. But you'll find plenty of footage of the Zerbi ball on YouTube. Watch some of it. And just watch the simplicity of it. And its brilliance is in its simplicity. Its brilliance is in its patience. It's not... It's not Nagelsmann-esque overcomplication of tactics. It's not Klopp-level high-intensity, high-paced football. It's a different type of attractive football. It's like watching City play, but melting that in with something else that makes it exciting because they have that ability to retain the retain possession, to be very measured in their approach to slow the game down and then speed it up and get through those transitions really quickly. Now, the one knock on him is that his teams have not been great defensively. Now, what I would say is that at Sassuolo, they didn't really bring in a lot of very good defenders. They brought in a lot of very good midfielders and a lot of very good forward players. And they also developed midfielders and forward players very, very well. One player there that I really like is Fratese, Fratese, the young Italian midfielder. He's very excited, exciting. He came through under the Zerbi, and he's one to keep an eye on. But defensively, it's always sort of been a little bit of a, a little bit of a hodgepodge of you know players that are a little bit past their best or reclamation projects or. You know, guys that just didn't work out at better clubs and were cheap and whatever else. They never really gave him a real foundation because they never really had any money to spend. The only money that they spent was money they brought in from selling players. But yet, he never complained about that. He just got on with it. And he found ways to make it work and he made it work. And I think he'll make it work at Brighton, but I think he'll have money to spend. Now, one thing he does really well defensively is that when he builds his attacks, when he builds those patterns of play, he does so with the idea of if we get turned over here, are my players in position to stop transition attacks? That's something you will note with him that I think is very, very high level. My big concern is what his team looks like in their kind of half field defense a set defensive phase but he hasn't worked with the best defenders going 
Let's just say that. And I think at Brighton, he'll have an opportunity to work with better defenders than he has to this point in his career. I think at Brighton, he's going to find a lot of really exciting players that work really well on what he wants to do. Alexis McAllister will be great under him. Caicedo will be great under him. It wouldn't surprise me if we see Lamptey played as a winger, if we see Trossard played more as a winger. I, I think the days of Trossard as a wingback probably over now. We'll probably see a back four. I think he will want a striker. I don't think he'll settle for Danny Welbeck. I think he's going to want a more reliable source of goals. But he will get goals from his wide players. He will get some goals from midfield. He will try to spread that goal burden out between the team. And he will be very adventurous in doing so. I don't think Brighton could have done much better here. I think this is a a really, really impressive thing. And for the likes of Sunes, who've come out with this silly statement, I will remind him, Sassuolo also wanted to keep him. Shakhtar also wanted to keep him, but because of the war, they released him from his contract and allowed him to leave the country because of the dangers. Now, he stayed there. He stayed in Ukraine for the first few months. He didn't up and leave. He stayed because he thought he was going to go back to work there once it was over. Still not over. The man needs to work, so the man is working. The other thing Sunes said that was ignorant was you're bringing a manager like this who doesn't know our game. Our game. The English football game. This is the same nonsensical mentality that Gary Neville has displayed in recent weeks. Gary Neville, by the way, um, tweeted some nonsense recently and responded to my tweet asking him why he didn't complain about American owners until his job on Sky was threatened. Uh, And then told me not to be naive. Clown. Absolute clown. But soon as saying... Well, he doesn't know our game is really, really ignorant. Because let's look at the managers who've won league titles in the last 30 years and how much they knew of our game. So let's just start with the start of the Premier League. Alex Ferguson won the first league title. Before joining Manchester United, he'd never had a job in England. Uh, Kenny Dalglish, he had been at Liverpool. Uh, Ferguson again, Ferguson again. Wenger, before joining Arsenal, didn't know our game. Ferguson, Ferguson, Wenger, Ferguson, Wenger. Jose Mourinho didn't know our game. Ferguson, Ferguson, Ferguson. Carlo Ancelotti didn't know our game. Ferguson, Roberto Mancini didn't know our game. Ferguson... Manuel Pellegrini didn't know our game. Jose Mourinho returns. Claudio Ranieri, now he had been at Chelsea, so he knew the game, so it was okay. Antonio Conte didn't know the game. Pep Guardiola didn't know the game. Jurgen Klopp didn't know the game, and Pep Guardiola again. So of the 30 years of Premier League winning managers, only Kenny Dalglish 
Mourinho the second time around and Claudio Ranieri didn't know the game. Or sorry, did know the game. Only them, before they won their first league title. Incredible. Here's today's fun fact. The last three times the top flight in England was won by an Englishman, they were all called Howard. That's today's fun fact. Take a break. Back in a bit. See you soon. Right, welcome back. So, I want to talk just quickly about the Premier League season as it is ongoing and how I think overall thus far it's been a little bit of a disappointment in terms of the quality of football being played. I don't think there's an outstanding team. I understand that Arsenal are top and are very excited, but I mean, look at the start that they've had. I mean, of the games that Arsenal have played, who have they played that you expect to finish in the top half? Palace, no. Leicester, maybe. Bournemouth will be lucky if they don't finish in the bottom three. Fulham, the same. Villa will be bottom half. United would expect to finish in the top half. And Brentford would not. So... One definite that you'd expect in the top half and one maybe in Leicester. It's been a very, very favourable run for Arsenal. Now, they have can only beat what's put in front of them, but the one good team they played, they lost to. And in truth, they were given a bit of a lesson by United. City have been good at times, have been fairly disappointing at other times. Tottenham are winning games without necessarily playing all that well. I think Brighton will be thrilled with their start of the season, obviously. But does anyone really expect them to finish top four? Manchester United, since they moved to Oli Ball, have been playing better and winning games. Uh, Fulham are sixth, which proves that early season tables mean nothing. Chelsea and Liverpool will both be very disappointed with, with how their seasons have gone. Uh, Brentford are ninth. Newcastle are 10th, but have only won one game. Leeds have been a bit of a mixed bag. Bournemouth have been thumped 9-0. Now, they've had a much better run since they sacked off Scotty Twocoats or Scott Cardigan, whichever you prefer. Everton have won one game. They've scored five goals. They're a bad team. Southampton are a mixed bag. They're good one week and dreadful the next. Villa are a poorly coached team. Palace, results haven't reflected performance. Wolves the same. West Ham, Nottingham Forest and Leicester are the bottom three. West Ham, Nottingham Forest and Leicester. Now, Nottingham Forest are newly promoted. It was going to take them time to get their sea legs. West Ham and Leicester have no excuse Absolutely no excuse for how this season has begun. Leicester City last year finished eighth. The two previous seasons, they finished fifth. That is what they have established themselves at, is a top eight club. West Ham last year finished seventh. The season before finished sixth. 
they are on their way to establishing themselves in that top eight. Them and Leicester joining the big six as the top eight. So to be seven games into the season, for West Ham to have one win, one draw, five defeats and four points in 18th, and Leicester to have zero wins, one draw and six defeats with one point in 20th is very, very concerning. Now, these clubs are going in opposite directions at the moment, taking aside the results. Take take the results and the performance out of there for one sec. Let's look at Leicester in the summer. Wes Fafana leaves their most valuable player in terms of financial cost. And Kasper Schmeichel, their leader, they leave. West Ham, or sorry, Leicester don't really spend any money. They bring in uh, Woot Face for I think about 18 million to be the replacement for Fafana. They don't spend any more money. Last season was a drop-off year for them. It was a step backwards from where they'd been the two previous seasons, the back-to-back fifth-place finishes and the FA Cup win. We saw a regression by certain players. We saw a lot of injuries. And we saw the trademarks of the end-of-days Brendan Rodgers situation where the defence can no longer work the attack starts to falter. The players are thrown under the bus. The players stop working for him. The shtick becomes more David Brent-esque and the excuses roll more frequently. This is always the way with Brendan. It's the same at Liverpool. It was the same at Celtic. The players had gotten bored of his message. Now, at Celtic, he just had a huge advantage in that Rangers had been garbage because they'd been relegated and relegated and relegated because of their cheating. And then they had to work their way back up. So they were still trying to rebuild themselves as the Celtic team that Rodgers inherited had been dominating the league and Rodgers continued to dominate the league. And to his credit, did take them to a new height. But... There was telltale signs in his last season that things were starting to come to a bit of an end. Now, there are definitely signs that um, there were definitely signs that his Leicester tenure was coming to an end last season. You could watch Leicester at any point and you could pick out four or five fairly glaring issues with that team their half-field defence, their set-piece defence, their transition defence, their poor habits in the transfer market that were very reminiscent of Brendan Rodgers at other clubs. I'm talking Vestergaard, I'm talking Bertrand, and I'm talking about the non-integration of players signed by the scouting department. Bubakari Samare, Pats and Daka. Neither of them got nearly enough opportunities last year because Brendan wasn't the one responsible for signing them. And the third one then was the excuses. There was always an excuse. There was never just an acceptance of, you know, this is just a bad season for us. 
Now, my belief is that Leicester need to move on from Rodgers. I think there's there's very much a shelf life with Brendan Rodgers on what he can do for you as a club. And it either has to happen in the first two seasons or it won't happen. Now, I think any manager walking in the door is walking into a really, really strong squad. Not goalkeeper-wise. Danny Ward is a backup at best. I think Daniel Iverson's fairly talented. I don't know that he's Premier League caliber. I would say he's probably a backup at best. So maybe they're your number two and number three keepers. Uh, Alex Smithies is not a Premier League caliber goalkeeper. With respect to him, he's just not a Premier League caliber, caliber goalkeeper. So if you walk in the door, the first thing you have to do is you have to go and buy a goalkeeper. Now, obviously, can't it after January, but you've got to start start now. If you take the job tomorrow, on Friday, you're meeting with the scouts and you're going over what we want from a goalkeeper at this club and you're going and finding that. In defence, I don't think it takes much at all. Fullbacks. You've got Ricardo Pereira. I know he's out injured, but he will be back, and he is excellent. You've got James Justin, who's outstanding and can play both sides. You've got Luke Thomas, who's a really promising young left back. And you've got Timothy Castanier, who can play both sides and is a good player. Not a great player, but a good player. You've also got Ryan Bertrand and Daniel Amarty, who can play fullbacks if you were stuck, but you'd need to be stuck. So the fullbacks, I think, are okay. I don't think you need to spend any money there unless you decide to sell Pereira next summer, which I probably would look to do personally. But, you know, it's not necessarily something you have to do. I'd be looking at it mostly because of his age and his contract, but it is what it is. At centre-back, we can't judge uh, FaZe on what we saw at the weekend because the whole team got shellacked by Tottenham. But I spoke to a few people who saw him quite a bit in France and they were quite high on him and said that with the right partner, he could be a good defender. So you've got him, you've got Kagler Sionchu, who unfortunately has had quite a steep decline, but there's definitely still a good defender there. So you could look to rehabilitate him and maybe he's your third centre-back. You've got Johnny Evans, who should only be your fourth centre-back at this point. He's too injury-prone to be anything more. You need to go and buy a starting-caliber centre-back to partner face. And then you've got four, and I'd probably look to bring in a young, high-potential high fifth to develop to potentially become the third or even one of the starters. You'd be looking very much to move Yannick Vestergaard out the door. In midfield, I think they're in really good shape. You've got, now, contract of Yuri Thielemans, of course, is an issue. You've got Ndidi, you've got Samari, you've got Nimpali's Mendy, and you've got Hamza Chowdhury, who's on loan at Watford. So you've got plenty of options for holding midfield. You'd want to be giving Ndidi a new contract. That that would be one of the first orders of business is get Wilf and Didi signed up to a new contract. Telemans may well leave, but you should still be trying to offer him something new. If he won't take it, you just accept your faith. And you've got to go and get a midfielder. 
I do very much like Dewsbury Hall. And if you're playing a 4-3-3, you've got Ndidi and Dewsbury Hall as two-thirds of that. And then Tielemans or whoever replaces him. You've got Dennis Pryette can play both of the eight spots. So you're pretty set in midfield. Madison can also play as an eight. So a Tielemans replacement is about all you need. Up front, you've got Madison to play one side, Barnes the other. Ayosi Perez is an option. You'd probably want to bring in one more. You'd probably let Mark Jews, uh, Mark Al- Mark Albrighton go. And then for your strikers, you've got Vardy, Iheanacho, and Daka. So you don't need to bring in a nine. So realistically, you need to buy four players. One to replace Thielemans. One who'd just be a depth wide option. Maybe a natural winger who can play both sides. Like a Damari Gray, for example. Another good move by Brendan. Um... A centre-back, a starting centre-back oh, and a backup centre-back as well. So like a depth youth player, 19, 20-year-old type of job. Someone that you can just develop over the course of time. And a goalkeeper. So you need five. So you actually need five. But that's not huge amounts. And that can be done in time. It doesn't need all to be done. It doesn't need to be all done at once. In January, you go and you get yourself your goalkeeper. You patch your defence together until the summer. Then you go and get your centre-back and your Tielemans replacement. And then over the course of time, you can get that wide player and that other centre-back that you can develop. But there's a good squad there. There's a good team of players there. That's far better than 20th and one point. That's far better than what we've seen. Like, look at their season so far. They go two up against Brentford. They throw it away and end 2-2. They go two down to Arsenal, they score, they let Arsenal score immediately, they score again, they let Arsenal score immediately again. That's awful. They go one up at home to Southampton, they lose 2-1. Chelsea get reduced to 10 men, and Leicester managed to fall 2-0 behind against 10 men. They got all lead and lost 1-0 to United. They went one up against Brighton, then it was 1-0. Then they went 2-1 behind, then it was 2 all. Then they fell apart and the game ended 5-2. They went one up against Spurs and Spurs scored straight away. Then Spurs went 2-1 up and then they fought back and got to 2-2. And then they fell apart in the second half and the game ended 6-2. Like, this is this is not acceptable. This is not good enough. But the squad is more than good enough to be top half in the Premier League. And Brendan Rodgers is the biggest issue at this club right now. And it is time for them to just make a decision to move on from him because he's not working and he's not going to work. I'm not going to have enough time to do West Ham today. So I'm going to do West Ham tomorrow. It'll give me something to talk about tomorrow as well. What I'm quickly going to do is going to run through some news and then the gossip and be done. Uh, Chelsea have sacked commercial director Damien Willoughby after he sent inappropriate messages to a female football finance agent. Willoughby sent improper messages to Catalina Kim before he joined the club last month. Kim was involved with a bid to buy the club. So before he even got appointed, he did something very stupid and he has been punished for that. 
He did previously work for Chelsea between 07 and 2010. Uh, he also worked for Man City and EA Sports. He's been in the job less than a month and he has been sacked. That is uh, well done, Damien, you clown. I hope you don't get another job in football, genuinely. Uh, Chelsea fans were very excited by the potential of having a new sporting director. It did look like Christoph Freund from RB Salzburg was going to join, but it now appears he will stay at Salzburg and Chelsea's search will continue. That's not ideal for Chelsea, but, you know, we move. Ivan Tony said he never doubted that he would be called up for England. He is fully deserving of that call-up and congrats to him. Atletico Madrid have condemned the unacceptable chance towards Real Madrid for, uh, forward Vinicius Juniors, Junior at the weekend. Uh, there were noticeable rate, racist chants before, during and after the game by not all that small sections of Atletico Madrid fans who should all be ashamed of themselves. Uh, UEFA, remember when the good guys won and the Super League was killed? Well, UEFA are planning a new mini-tournament at the start of each season featuring four teams, which will be the European Cup winners. Now, I assume this will scrap the Super Cup. I, or the Super Cup maybe will be between the Europa Conference League and Europa League teams. This will be a tournament of the, Euro the European champions and three others. Now, what I would say... They've suggested it could be teams that got to the semi-finals, which I don't like. I would say just replace the Super Cup. Have this tournament be the reigning. So for let's just say it starts next season. So have it be the reigning Super Cup winners, the reigning European Cup winners, the reigning Europa League winners, and the reigning Conference League winners reward those teams and then the team that wins it gets automatically put into the following seasons along with the European champions, the Europa League champions and the Conference League champions. That will be the best way to do this. But this will be done purely for money and will be garbage. Um, there's a really interesting piece on, it's written by Guillaume Balaga, so I'm hesitant to, to promote it. But it's on the BBC website. It's about the Antoine Griezmann shenanigans that are currently taking place between Atletico Madrid and Barcelona. So do give that one a read. It is very, very funny. Um, Lionel Messi's demands for a contract extension at Barcelona in 2020. A £10 million signing bonus, 10000 a euro release clause, a private box, the new camp for him and Suarez, a salary increase in 2022 with a 3% interest rate to compensate for deferred salaries. I, I, I don't even know what to make of that. that. That just doesn't seem like it makes any sense. Um, Sergio Busquets looks like he could leave Barcelona for Inter Miami in the summer when his contract expires. I think that would be a good move for him. Let's just do the gossip and be done. Nice are hoping they can convince Maurizio Pochettino to replace Lucien Favre as manager 
of the League One club. Now, Lucien Favre obviously only took over in the summer and things have not gone particularly well for Nice to start the season. Um, They have won two of eight games. And if you saw their game at the weekend, you'll have seen Tadebo getting sent off after nine seconds, uh, which was both a ridiculous decision and quite funny. Yuri Thielemann says he does not regret staying at Leicester this summer, despite being linked with a move to Arsenal. Let's ask him again if Brendan's still in the job in a month. Uh, Chelsea and United States winger Christian Pulisic says he was dumbfounded by Thomas Tuchel's decision not to start him in the Champions League semi-final second leg against Real Madrid in 2021. Um, I don't know why you were dumbfounded. Genuinely. Everton and Brazil manager, sorry, Everton and Brazil midfielder Alan has opened talks to join United Arab Emirates club Al Wada in the next fortnight. Everton looking to get a, a highly paid player off the wage bill. Former Everton boss Rafa Benitez says he could not manage the Goodison Park club like he wanted because of his ties at Liverpool. No, it's just because they were garbage, Rafa. Don't worry about it too much. Chelsea owner and interim sporting director Todd Bowley is angry and perplexed that the previous regime did not move for Aurelian Chouameni. This is nonsense because he's never even heard of Aurelian Chouameni. Let's be honest here. AC Milan and Portugal forward Rafael Leao wants to sign a new contract with the club. Despite attracting interest from Chelsea, Barcelona's list of replacements for Sergio Busquets includes Ruben Neves and Martin Zubimenda. Wales and Nice midfielder Aaron Ramsey says he moved from Juventus to Arsenal after a contract he had agreed with the Gunners was no longer there. He moved for money. Don't don't accept anything else. Um, Lisandro Martinez and Christian Romero have been left stranded from the Argentine squad before two friendlies because of visa issues. This only happens with Argentina. It seems like their national team is run a little bit like the Irish team was run in like the early 2000s. It's a bit of a circus. Leeds midfielder Jamie Shackleton is expected to leave Ellen Road next summer with Millwall having to op- having an option to buy him when his, con- when his loan expires. Um, Juventus board of directors will hold a meeting on Friday to discuss the future of Max Allegri. I don't know how he's still in the job, to be honest. Chelsea are targeting... Chelsea are targeting RB Leipzig Chief Executive Oliver Minslaff uh, to take up a technical role at Stamford Bridge. Well, I don't think he'll do that unless you pay him a bunch of money because that is a step down. Chelsea could turn to Bayer Leverkusen Sporting Director Tim Stettin as their next target. Uh, fine, fire ahead. He's not very good. Uh, Tottenham are in advanced talks with recruitment expert Jeff Vettier to head their under-21s recruitment. Um, bit of a surprise. Bit of a surprise. Hopefully he does well if they take him. Former Manchester City and Ivory Coast midfielder Yaya Toure is helping England under-21s pe- prepare for games against Italy and Germany, Germany as he attempts to complete his coaching badges. Fair play to yeah yeah right that'll do me for today i could go back over the last few days gossip but 
No, enough is enough for today. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.